Hey, those of you listening online, I forgot to turn it on. So I've been, we've been going for about five minutes, but I turned it back on. Sorry. Here we go. Okay. So Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, 7 when he's mad. He, so he's marched into the temple and he sees that it's been co-opted into this distortion of what the temple was for in the first place. It's being tied into the economic and political schemes of Israel's day. And so he wrecks the temple. He stops the sacrifices from being offered because he upsets the sacrificial system. And then he quotes from two lines in the prophets. And they're kind of famous lines, at least the words of Jesus. What's the first thing Jesus said? You have made my house into a, a den of thieves. He's quoting Jeremiah 7. And then he says, for what was the point of the temple in the first place? My house was, the whole point was that this would be a place where the nations would gather and, and find the grace and mercy in Yahweh, of Yahweh. And instead you've turned it into a little exclusive country club for the most religious Jews. So he's dead. So it's just great. And it totally fits in with precisely what the context of the passage is. So verse 8. The sovereign Lord declares, the one who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So this is interesting. So there was a a returning from exile of Jews. And you read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. But are those... Were the promises of salvation fulfilled just in the people coming back to the land from Babylon, according to this? No, there's still a whole other gathering of God's people who will be brought uh, into salvation who are in addition to those gathered back then. Namely, us. So this is talking about us. So we, we are these Gentiles who were not a part of the covenant to Israel, and through the work of the servant, we actually get included into the whole thing. So this is, uh, just to, again, highlight. Uh, hmm. Funny happened. What? You guys are totally watching me be inept at using my computer. So, do you see that? Why won't... Oh, wait. What's that over there? Why is it over there? Oh, there it is. Why did it go over there, you know? It's so weird. Okay. Um, so, this is a, a good example of uh, passages in the New Testament that begin to take on... Um, new meaning in light of a passage like this. So this is Ephesians, and these are well-known words of Paul. You were dead in your transgression, trespasses and sins in which you walked following the course of the world, and so on. But verse 4, God, being rich in mercy, uh, because of the great love, he made us alive together. Uh, with whom? He says, with Christ. And remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title, it's a title for Messiah, in the Messiah. Um, so he goes on and he says, he plays out what exactly he means. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, and by that he means, I think, 
maybe most of us sitting in the room here. Uh, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. By, i.e., by Jewish people, we are called the uncircumcised. We're dirty Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separated from the Messiah. You were not in on the covenant promises to Israel. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Messiah Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he himself is our peace. He's made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of of hostility. So again, what Paul's building off of here is this whole development of this idea in the the book of Isaiah. That through the work of the servant in bearing uh, the punishment of sin into himself, it opens up salvation out to those of us outside the covenant. And that's what Isaiah is happening here in Isaiah chapter 56. So this is really good news for us. Uh, it's really, it's really good news. Thoughts or questions? Okay, so that's how this section of the book begins. Where, where do we find the matching section of this elsewhere in, I, in the structure? In the, la- in the last sentences, yeah? So let's go there to chapter 66. <clears throat> So again, the, the, book, the section begins, but it also ends with this. And this is totally fascinating. <clears throat> so, um, so God's going to, again, we'll read 66 a little more. But he's going to come and finally bring salvation to Jerusalem and bring judgment on the wicked. Um, verse 19. Um, let's see. I'm sorry, verse 18. And I, because of their actions and imaginations, I am about to come and to gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive, the the remnant, I will send them out to the nations. And then it's all these far distant nations, to Tarshish, which to Israelites was like saying Timbuktu like way far away, super far, all these distant places, to Tarshish, the Libyans, to the Lydians, who are famous as archers, (laughs) to Tuval, to Greece, to distant lands that have not heard of my fame or see my glory. So it's this idea here that in the final salvation, there's going to be a remnant who's sent out among the nations to proclaim the fame and the name of Yahweh, the fame and name of of Yahweh and what he's done. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. They will bring all of your brothers from among all of the nations to my holy mountain. Remember what it say in verse chapter 56? The foreigners will be included. He said, I'll bring them to my holy mountain, to the temple. So here, they will proclaim, uh, they will bring all of your brothers from all of the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. Now, look at verse 20 here. This is interesting. They, these, this remnant of those who are connected to the servant, they go out and they tell the world about the servant. 
And then they bring them all back. And what are they called in verse 20? All of these Gentiles from among the nations. What are they called at the beginning of verse 20? Your brothers. So now all of you have, you have Jewish people who are sent out to proclaim the work of the servant and Yahweh among the nations. And then this ingathering of Gentiles who come to know Yahweh are called your brothers. Wow, okay. They'll be brought to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. And here's what they're going to ride on. Horses, chariots, wagons, mules, and camels. They will bring them in as the Israelites bring in their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. I will select also some of them to become priests and Levites, says the Lord. Who is the them? Yeah, the brothers. And who are the brothers? Gentiles. Yeah, Gentiles. So you have this idea here that uh, I mean, who's, who's seeing the book of Acts to play out before your eyes right here, right? Yeah, exactly. So, again, it was text like this that was the inspiration of mission in the early church. Because the whole point was that the work of the servant allowed the nations to become included in the salvation. And so the mission is now, now to spread. And here's a, really, here's a totally interesting thing here. Um, put your thumb here and go to the book of Romans again. <clears throat> Uh, chapter 15, Romans 15. Um, let's go to verse 14. And these, are, these last uh, chapters of Romans are interesting because Paul kind of unveils why he wrote the letter of the Rome, to the Roman church. Verse 14, he says, I myself am convinced, my brothers that you yourselves are full of goodness, you're complete in knowledge, you're competent to instruct each other. I have written you quite boldly on some points. <laughs> and you're like, whoa, the whole letter is bold. What do you mean on some points? Right? So I've written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Messiah Jesus to whom? To the Gentiles. So that was Paul's unique niche here. Peter and so on to missionary to the Jews. Paul and his mission to the, to the non-Jews. And look what he says here. To be a minister of Messiah Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the good news about God, the good news of God, so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Where would Paul get the idea that there are converts to Jesus, the Messiah, and that, that people coming to Jesus the Messiah is like an offering, a pleasant offering to God, like people would give an offering in the temple. Hey, he's been reading the last sentences of the book of Isaiah, right? This is precisely what he says here. Uh, this was back in Isaiah 66. All these Gentiles will come in from among the nations as an offering to the Lord. So it's, as opposed to bringing more sacrifices... It's now Gentiles who come to see the salvation of Israel's God that are now the offering. And that's, Paul sees that as his whole inspiration for what he's doing with his waking hours. So is this kind of how the Exodus 19.6 is, you will be called the Holy Nations? Yep, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Good. That's a good job. So, yeah, the whole thing is the servant is finally doing what Israel was called to do. So, uh, it's the servant and his work and then sending out the servants who they become the priests to the nation. So, Paul calls telling the gospel to Gentiles, he said, is my priestly duty. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. Thoughts or questions? Great. Um, let's go to the next kind of inner frame here. Um, and the, the two, the passages that kind of match each other in this section are a number of poems that contrast the fate of the servants and the fate of the wicked. Um, that although they are both among Israel, they'll be separated uh, and uh, they'll, be, they'll have different, different fates. So... We can't read all of these passages. I actually want to focus on the ones here in 65 and 66. Uh, So why don't you go to 65 with me. Um, And we're going to jump into... Sorry. We have to be selective here because we just don't have time. Is that okay? Hopefully I'm just whetting your appetite to go read this more on your own. So, okay, let's jump in at uh, verse 6. 65, verse 6. Look, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps. Your own, both your own sins and the sins of your fathers, says the Lord. Because they burned sacrifices on the mountains, they defied me on the hills. I will measure into their laps the full payment of their deeds. Which category of people are we talking about here? So the rejectors, the wicked. Those who reject the servant are just like their Israelite ancestors who worship other gods. So this is what the Lord says. It's like when there's still juice found in a cluster of grapes. And people say, no, don't throw all those grapes away because there's still some good stuff in the grapes. So I will do on behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. In other words, I won't destroy all of Israel. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob. Does anyone have a different translation there? Offspring. What word do you think that is? It's the word seed. Yeah, this is so interesting. Why does this happen? Hmm. I think what happened is when I plugged it in, I think there's another screen it thinks over here. And it has all this stuff over here. Why did that happen? I don't know. Anyway, okay, so, well, that's so small, though. Um, Sorry. I wish I actually knew what I was doing. All right. So yeah, that word descendants is the word, uh, that's the word seed. You remember the Hebrew word for seed? Yeah, yeah Zera, Zera. So who is the seed? Who are the servants? Is it just ethnic Israel? By, by being an ethnic Israelite, does that automatically include you among the seed and the servants? No. So it's sort of like there's this larger ethnic Israel And out of ethnic Israel, God will bring a seed. The people who uh, 
Uh, well, I'll keep reading here. I'll bring a seed out of Jacob, and out of Judah those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them. There my servants will live. Uh, go down to verse 13. This is, this is super interesting too. Therefore, this is what Sovereign Yahweh says. It's now addressing the wicked. He says, My servants will eat, but you, the wicked, you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out of the anguish of heart and wail from the brokenness of spirit. So this, again, this contrast, when, when the curtain finally falls, uh, there'll be this reversal here. Now, just think about, think about the depiction of the servant here. Hungry, thirsty, put to shame, grief. That's what the servant essentially experienced, right? And so the idea is that those who follow the servant are in for the same lot as the servant. But at the end of the game, there'll be this great reversal where those, uh, it's the servants who will be vindicated. They will eat. These will go hungry. And so on. you see these contrasts here. So again, put your thumb here and uh, go to the Gospel of Luke with me. This is uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Speaking of uh, blessed, or blessed. Mm-hmm. So there's two versions of the blessings of Jesus. There's one in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, and then there's one in Luke, chapter 6, and they're a little, just a little bit different. It's interesting. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. You see what he's doing here? Now, how is this different than what's happening in Isaiah 65? There's a time difference between the two. See that? So Jesus says, right now, you who follow me, you're going to be hungry, you're going to be poor, people are going to reject you. Now, but in the future you will be full, and you will laugh, and you will have joy, and you will be vindicated. And what is Jesus doing here? So he's adapting this this saying here from Isaiah 65. And it's this promise that those who follow the servant will be vindicated one day in the future. And so Jesus adapts this and says it to his followers, that it's going following is going to be super hard. And... Uh, I mean, you can just see the language of the New Testament all over this. Just as they hated me, in, in John, the upper room discourse, just as they hated me, so also they will hate you. But at the end of the game, the tables will be turned. And uh, anyway, I, I just like tracking where Jesus is using stuff in Isaiah, and it kind of helps me make sense of what he's, what he's doing there. Thoughts or questions? Okay, let's, uh, let's do, do one more here. Go down to verse 17. So we're con- again, we're contrasting the fate of the servant with the fate of the wicked. Verse 17. Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, 
The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people. And again, after all of this, my people has a really specific reference, doesn't it? Who's included in my people? So it's servant and and seed, those who obey, Israel and the nation. I mean, it's, yeah, so my people in the bigger picture now include Gentiles. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who doesn't live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. I love this. It's such a great image here. In other words, are the boundaries of death going to prevent uh, what God wants for his people anymore? Even death won't be uh, the biggest enemy we can possibly imagine. People will live beyond what we think is possible. Uh, so the one who dies at a hundred will be thought, he's just a youngin, you know. And the one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered a curse. They will build houses, dwell in them. They will plant vineyards, eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. This is such a great line. How, how long do trees live? Long, super long time, right? So especially, I don't know if you, uh, there are olive trees um, in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, in Jerusalem today, or the traditional spot of the Garden of Gethsemane. There are some olive trees there. Actually, you can probably look at a picture of them. Yeah, there's these great olive trees. Yeah, look at this guy. I mean, it's just massive. These things are like 600 years old. These, all these old olive trees, you know. Um, so these are the images that Isaiah is calling to mind here. These trees that have been around more generations than we can remember, kind of thing. So will be the days of my people. The boundaries of death will not will not exist anymore. That's the meaning of the, the image here. It gets better. They will not toil in vain. They will not bear children, doomed to misfortune, for they will be a Hmm, something blessed by the Lord. What do, you, what do your translations have? Offspring, blessed by the Lord. So what's the word there? Yeah. Seed. This is the seed who are blessed by the Lord in the new, in the new creation. New heavens and earth, we're going to say. They're not playing harps in heaven. <laughs> this, is, this is a new heavens and earth, a new creation. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. This is ringing any bells, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, so this is really cool. This is great. So, let me finish the drawing here. Um, So we have this image here of of the new heavens and the new earth. I'm just going to draw a planet. Florida. You're right. Yeah, you know. You're up. 
but it's new, so it's like new, sparkling new. Um, and the seed and the nations all in, inherit and live in this new restored creation. And then what passage are we quoting here? Did I just say that a moment ago? What, Jesus, what does this remind us of? The wolf and the lamb lying down together? Yeah, this is, this is bringing us all the way back to the messianic kingdom of Isaiah 11. Uh, it's literally a quotation from Isaiah chapter 11. So, what, so this is very intentional, because what the, what the person who put all this together is trying to remind us of all these images of the messianic salvation in the past and link all of this together. But then look at what he does here. This is so great. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. And what's the next line? Dust will be the serpent's food. Yeah, that's not from Isaiah 11. What's, what are we talking about here? So the curse here. So just to yeah, make sure we're all on the same page. So one of the great uh, promises right after uh, the serpent deceives the man and the woman is this promise of defeat and humiliation for the serpent. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So this one, this, I mean, this reaches all the way back to, uh, I don't know, to Genesis 3. And so this, uh, this kingdom, the messianic kingdom, the new creation, this was all a reversal and an undoing of the fall. That's essentially what's happening here. This is tying together the whole storyline of the Bible. Uh, and all of it, the, the work of the serpent is brought to an end through the work of the servant. Serpent, servant. There you go. Isn't this cool how it all ties together? So again, so this is very typical of good biblical poetry. It'll just be a little line, right? Dust will be the serpent's food. And we would tend to read right over that, but there's a whole world of theology underneath just that one little poetic line that's trying to make you think of the storyline of the whole Bible. Uh, They will neither harm nor uh, destroy on all my holy mountain. Um... So you get this, uh, these images here, these contrasting uh, fates of the servants, the righteous, they inherit the kingdom. Uh, but the fate of the wicked was talked about. They'll go hungry and such like that. Go to the last sentence, actually, of uh, chapter 66. Go to the very end of the book with me. This is another... <clears throat> uh, verse 22 of chapter 66. Uh, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and your what? Your seed will endure. Exactly, because they're going to live as old as olive trees. Right? Their name will endure. From one new moon to the next, from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come down and, and bow before me, says the Lord. So again, the vision... Remember, the works of salvation in the future are always depicted 
but with language from the past. So when Yahweh acts again, it'll be showing his holy arm, like he did back in the Exodus. And so it, the new creation and the Gentiles coming together, this is viewed as like the ultimate Sabbath party. Like that. Just the biggest Sabbath celebration you can possibly imagine. That's the image here. And all of humanity is participating. So it's this great, huge party, huge party. 24. And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will never die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So that's a bummer. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. So this verse has, uh, yeah, sparked a whole tradition, especially in Western European art, in depictions of hell, that the saints are somehow uh, can see those, those suffering and so on. So again, for me, the first thing I need to go to is these are all poetic descriptions of, and so they're referring to something real, but they're doing so in the language of, uh, of poetry. So the line does uh, seem, and part of it too, is that uh, the imagery of unquenchable fire and so on, especially in, in the New Testament, um, what the scene right here is going to get a specific name in the New Testament here. Some of you may be familiar with this. Because uh, the word hell in uh, Greek is the word, some of you might know this, yeah, the, the Aramaic word is Gai Hinnom, which means the Valley of Hinnom. In Greek, this becomes Gehenna. Uh, let's see, so that's Greek. And this is, this is Aramaic. Um, and so Gai Hinnom, it's a valley just to the south of Jerusalem. And uh, there's some dispute about what exactly, but essentially it was like the dump, the waste dump. And so you could go out to the edge of the valley and throw your trash off almost, and it goes tumbling down the hill or be burned down there. Um, it was also the place where, when some of Israel's worst kings were ruling, where children were sacrificed, and so on. And so uh, what, what, most, what seems to be going on is when Isaiah, and then it goes on into the New Testament, envisions the faith of those who reject, it becomes, the, the image at hand is the image of this infamous burning trash heap valley to the south of Jerusalem. And so the image here is that you're in the new Jerusalem, the saints and so on, is the new creation, the new Jerusalem, um, and you can go look over the walls and see the fate of those who rejected and chose not to be in on the Sabbath party. So that's a poetic image. So I, I guess I'm not comfortable speculating on what, how exactly that is going to play out. So I guess you could take it to be a literal description that somehow those, like those who are in having the experience of hell, are within visible sight. Uh, I don't want to see that, you know. So I don't think anybody does. Uh, yeah, precisely. So, so that's part of the thing. That's how biblical poetry works, is that 
there's images that are out there, there's their shock value, and then you get another image that it'll, it'll all be forgotten. The former things will all be forgotten. Well, how can they be forgotten if you can go see them outside? So a lot of it is these images are just all put in front of you, and they're, they're not harmonized, or they're not put together when there's tension between some of the images. They're just all thrown at you. And uh, so I think the proper response there is just to take each image and the idea connected to it. There'll be two contrasting fates for the rejectors and for the, the obedient. And it's a tragic. So it's interesting that the book ends on a tragic note. For all that, it's, I mean, the name of the book is Isaiah, which means Yahweh brings salvation. But the tragedy of hell is this monument to people's will to reject and not be in on the Sabbath party. I chose not to end the class by re- reading that verse. So let's, let's go back to the happier time. <clears throat> um, the inner frame kind of within that section right there are these two bold ones here, um, which are these prayers of confession uh, on behalf of Israel's sin. Go to chapter 59 with me. Uh, let's see. Let's go, uh, let's go with verse 9. We have to be selective here. And these are prayers, essentially what these are framed as, these are prayers of the righteous, prayers of the servants, uh, who are waiting the final salvation. And they are uh, lamenting and confessing. So they say, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We are looking for light, but what do we see all around us? darkness. We're looking for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like blind people, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight, among the strong like we are dead. We growl like bears, we moan like doves, we look for justice, but we find none. We look for deliverance, but it is far away. This very, these poems are really interesting because they're describing the experience of the servants before the final salvation. And, I mean, I think we, in many ways we're supposed to find our own parallel experience here. As, you know, for those who pay attention to the servant, but we still live in the period before the great separation takes place, and it seems very dark outside. There's a lot of beauty and goodness in the world. There's a lot of tragedy and corruption in the world, too. That's the image here. For our offenses are many in your sight. Our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us. And we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies that our hearts have conceived. And so justice is driven back, the righteousness stands at a distance, truth has stumbled in the streets, and honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. So this is interesting here, because the, as the servants confess, do they separate themselves from the wicked? Do you see what I'm saying here in the prayer? They're actually including themselves 
like we, our offenses are many in your sight. So it's a very, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't quite know the words to say here, but it's a, it's a corporate confession. We, humanity, are all the broken. And the world that we've turned your good world into, all this kind of thing. So keep reading, this is great. So the Lord looked, and he was displeased, when there, uh, displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, and he was appalled that there was nobody to intercede. And so his own arm did what? His own arm worked salvation for him. And again, we're thinking back, what's the arm of the Lord? When's the last time we heard the arm? It comes from the Exodus. When's the last time in Isaiah we heard about the arm of the Lord? Right at the beginning of Isaiah 53. So who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So it's almost like we're going back here. We're going back to Isaiah 53 here. Why did Yahweh send the servant? Because there was no one to intercede. There was just a world of darkness. And so his own arm, he sends uh, the servant. And uh, it answers the prayer of those who are waiting for him. So his own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He, that is the Lord, put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Does this ring a bell? Okay. Okay. So the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6. So it's, again, Paul... So not to say that Paul's not original, but in a lot of ways he's not original. So he's just been reading his Bible a lot. And then he usually does something original with the language and the imagery. Kind of tweaks it and does new things with it. But uh, yeah, he's a plagiarist in the, best, in the best possible way. He's a plagiarist. So it's good to plagiarize the Bible. Uh, he, he put on, so righteousness is a breastplate, helmet of salvation on his head. He wrapped... Uh, he put on garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal, like, as in the cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay. Wrath to his enemies, retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, men will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. Verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who do what? Who repent of their sin. So again, you have this prayer of the servant and then this promise that God is going to intervene with the servant. He is going to show his arm again and he's going to bring judgment on the wicked. But for those who repent, uh, he's going to bring, bring redemption. So, I don't know, maybe just to observe, you notice how none of this is sequential or time. It's not like we're just going one story from the beginning to the end. We're constantly going back and forth to why did the servant have to come and the world's so screwed up. And then we're talking about the new creation and it's constantly going back and forth, but it's all kind of hovering hovering around these themes. It reads a lot like the book of Revelation, doesn't it? You're just like, whoa, now this and now that. It's just kind of all over the map, telling the same story, but in these cycles over. Thoughts or questions?
Did anyone recognize verse 20? Uh, why don't you put your thumb here. Again, go to Romans with me. Uh, Romans chapter 11. This is one of this, this is one of the bold points of Romans. And he says, "I've written, written to you boldly about something." So, chapter eleven, uh, verse twenty-five, and the whole framework of actually Romans nine through eleven is answering this question right here: um, the Messiah came to Israel, and some, the great majority of Israel, rejected the Messiah. And, but some have believed. And the nations have used as an olive tree metaphor. The nations got grafted in to the people, the covenant people of God. And so one of Paul's big questions then is, wait a minute, I thought God's promises to Abraham were to all of Israel. Um, what's the future of ethnic Israel? If you have this division in Israel, some who reject and some who accept. And so 11.25, he, this is... Uh, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this mystery, brothers, so that you won't become conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full numbers of the Gentiles have come in. So this is another, kind of remember the whole theme of the rejection of the servant seemed like it was the plan had got, all gone wrong, but then in reality, that was a part of the divine purpose that the servant be rejected so that by his death salvation could come. And so Paul's looking at this and he actually sees something similar. He says this hardening of Israel is actually also plays a part in the divine purpose. Because it's precisely Israel, many Israelites rejecting Jesus as the Messiah that forced the gospel to go out to the nations, which is why you and I are sitting here having this conversation right now. And so he sees that it's all part of God's plan but it raises a problem with him. Well, what about promises to the nation of Israel? So, on. so he says, Israel's experienced the hardening until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, and lo and behold, what does he quote? He quotes from Isaiah 59, verse 20. A deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And then he pulls in a verse from Isaiah 27. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of of the patriarchs, because God's gift and his calling are irrevocable. So, uh, Paul sees that even though some in Israel may reject, God will not abandon his purposes to the tribe of the people of Israel. Somehow they will all be saved. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, so again, Paul uses the word all in different ways sometimes. So, because like when we read in Romans 5, through the sin of the one man, death came to all. Through the life and the obedience of Jesus, 
righteousness or justification came to all. So does that mean that every single human who has ever lived has been justified and is right with God? So no, that's not what he means there. So he's talking in broad strokes. Um, and well, he just says all. I think what he's pitching out here is that somehow God's promises to uh, bless and save the ethnic tribe of Israel, those promises won't fall flat. Somehow, and he doesn't say how because he doesn't know how. He just he just says if God's word is going to prove true, somehow Israel uh, still has a role of being saved and being brought into God's plan. That's all. I mean, he's actually it's so ambiguous. There's been a lot of debate around this verse, but it's so ambiguous. And he just quotes the lines from Isaiah that say, um, God's going to bring redemption, and uh, it's going to include the nations, but also the people of Israel. And there you go. He doesn't say how or when or... That's it. But it's interesting to me, he quotes this line after... um, those among the servants have confessed uh, their sin and so on. And God says, I'm going to bring judgment on the rejectors and the wicked and redeem these and a servant will come, or a redeemer will come to the vine. So Paul very much has the prophecies of Isaiah in view, but even he can't see how they'll, how it'll play out. Which should perhaps encourage us not to try and speculate on how this will play out. My personal opinion. Thoughts or questions? Okay, um, let's uh, let's go to the centerpiece here. Uh, this is the section that's at the very center of this whole structure, and we'll uh, we'll read some passages and then call it call it a day. Um, let's see, so there's three chapters, 60, 61, 62. So this is a cool thing about these concentric patterns. So at the very center of it all is this great depiction of the Messianic kingdom. And there's three chapters, and so what chapter is at the center? 61. So let us go, Isaiah 61. <laughs> yes, mine, one of mine too. The spirit of sovereign Yahweh is on me because the Lord has anointed me. Who is an anointed spirit empowered me in the book of Isaiah? So it's the Messiah and the servant all combined here. All of these, all of these together. So, and remember the spirit empowering comes from chapter 11. Um, and the uh, anointing comes from these chapters, so all that's being connected with the work of the servant here. And what's the work of the servant? The anointed messianic servant to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Okay, so let's pause real quick there. Um, so have we heard of announcing good news before? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So right, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 52. So the servant is kind of picking up all of these themes. And at the, in many ways, I think if 
we have these kind of concentric patterns here that are trying to isolate a center of these chapters. Isaiah 61 is the center, the center passage of this whole section, which means pay attention. It's placed right at the, at the kind of the pinnacle of this whole, this whole thing. So he's summarizing all of this. Now, uh, Jesus liked this passage, yeah? So where does he quote this passage? This is an interesting thing here. So he's in the synagogue reading. Does anyone remember address, phone number of the passage? There you go. It's Luke. It's getting warm. Luke. <laughs> Three. Warm. 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 It's <laughs> colder. Colder. Luke 4. Luke 4. <clears throat> and I'll put up on the screen here because I, well, I want you to keep Isaiah 61 in front of you here. So this is what uh, Jesus quotes here. So let's kind of compare it here. There's a really important difference. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. Proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What does he leave out? He leaves... What what do you mean? Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. The year of the Lord's favor. Yeah, exactly right. Um, so this is the Greek word uh, kurios here. Um, so one piece, but then the other piece, what it, he leaves off. He stops short. Do you see that there? The day of favor. Yeah, so in other words, there's this constant um, back and forth. And so what, what Isaiah 61 is saying is, servant is here to proclaim both salvation, but also the final the final judgment and setting right of all things. And Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, but he leaves out the vengeance part. So again, think of what's happening here. Uh, Jesus is seeing distinct parts of his mission. Um, let's see. How do I want to draw this? Okay, let's do it this way. So, if we have this as the new heavens and the new earth here. Uh, it's saying there's going to be a great act of judgment. That's my like explosion. That's an explosion right there. Okay? And uh, there'll be a great kind of climactic final event. And that event will bring uh, judgment on the rejectors. But for uh, the poor, for the brokenhearted, those who are waiting for God's salvation, what will it mean? What does he say? Good news. It's good news here. And so in Isaiah 61, these are just put together here. The servant comes to announce good news and judgment. Jesus uh, comes along and he... Uh, gives a little more, a little more detail here, and he essentially says, "Now is the time for good news. Uh, the time for judgment is not yet." And at least in Jesus' mind, or even think like of the Book of Revelation, 
the work of the servant to atone for sin and provide a means of forgiveness and pardoning, that happens before the final judgment. In other words, these two get separated. And so, essentially, this is kind of the framework of the whole New Testament, then, is that um, we live in the era in between the dawning of salvation, but before the coming of, of judgment. So, um, this works itself out in lots of ways in the New Testament. So, Paul says, uh, it's like everyone else is asleep, they're in darkness, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you're awake. It's like the light has dawned. It's like the sun has just begun to shine. And we live in this in-between era between the day of God's favor and, uh, and, the, day, and the day of judgment. So a lot of this, it, this goes a long way to explain the kind of the character of Jesus' ministry. So he saw as his primary ministry at this point in time the announcement of the good news and that the kingdom was, was available and that it would actually, that his death wasn't some unfortunate event. Uh, you know, he went around healing people and great, oh, and then it all went sour at the cross. No, actually, the whole point is that the cross is the fulfillment of this announcement of good news and that we live at this era in, in between the two. Uh, but it doesn't mean that Jesus is a pushover. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's going to return and he's going to bring justice. And all of the passages in Isaiah that kind of make us squirm or whatever, those don't get erased. Those uh, get put to the final, the final judgment, and it's not that time yet. So, anyway, I just think this is interesting. Jesus, he, he quotes this passage, but he also creates a, a new kind of time framework for how all these events relate to each other. Thoughts or questions? Yes. Yes, yeah. So there's a couple things he's doing here. Yes. So he left out the brokenhearted. And recovery of sight from the blind, he didn't get from Isaiah 61. He actually gets that from Isaiah 35. So he's doing even some creative working here. And Isaiah 35 is another salvation passage. And uh, so he's drawing from a handful of things here. So you notice that happened again, remember at Matthew, it says, as Isaiah the prophet said, and then it's actually a quotation of Malachi and then Isaiah. And so they, the New Testament authors often do this. They're steeped in the scriptures, you guys. And so when they think of quoting passages, they just put things together and uh, out comes a new, a new thing. You know? I don't, it's great. I don't, it's really great. I think it's cool. <laughs> So this, uh, this one is at the center, uh, the centerpiece. Go, uh, let's go to the outer frame here, then to 60. This is another. Some of you will, will know these lines here. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of Yahweh rises upon you. This is another handle of Messiah. Uh, one that's in the handle of Messiah. Look, darkness covers all of the earth. Thick darkness is over the peoples. But Yahweh rises upon you. 
His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So, uh, this is all, again, this is all poetic imagery, but it's the day of salvation is like uh, sunrise. And who's the sun here? Yahweh himself is the sun, right? He, he is rising, rising upon you. This gets, it gets really... Uh, uh, go, go down to verse um, 15. We'll pick up these images again. Although you have been forsaken and hated, with no one traveling through, I will make you the everlasting pride and the joy of all generations. You will drink the milk of nations. You will be nursed at royal breasts. The new, the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and earth. Uh, again, it's this image that Jerusalem is at the center of all this here. Have you caught that throughout, throughout the book? Um, but it does raise this question here of, like, actually the city of Jerusalem is going to be the center of all this. Is that what's happening here? Um, and as we're going to see, we'll find emphasis in the book of Hebrews as we go on later on. We're, I'm going to, we're going to end with the final chapters of Revelation. But they, they see this whole thing as being so, uh, such an act of God's intervention or something in the world that the only way they can frame it is that all of this is describing what they call the New Jerusalem. So Hebrews calls it and the author of Revelation. And so when uh, John, in the book of Revelation, he envisages, he envisages the new creation, and then he envisages a new Jerusalem that comes from God's presence, and it floats down and plants itself uh, right there in the new creation. So again, this is poetry. So you have to take that into consideration. But I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't personally think there'll be a golden spaceship with Jerusalem flying down to the earth. But it is definitely this idea that in the new creation, what God has done in and through His covenant purposes with David and the Messiah in Jerusalem will be like the center point of the earth. And so when Isaiah describes the new creation, he describes a Jerusalem that was forsaken, like in the exile but it'll be the exalted center point of what God is doing because of his promises to David and the patriarchs and so on. So, he goes on. He says, uh, You will drink the milk of nations, be nursed at royal breasts. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring you gold and silver instead of iron. Instead of wood, I'll bring you bronze, and iron in place of stones. I will make peace your governor, and righteousness your ruler. No longer will violence be heard in your land, or ruin or destruction in your borders, but you will, you will call your walls salvation, and call your gates praise. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for Yahweh will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Which means that the sun will never set again, and your moon will wane no more. Yahweh will be your everlasting light. The days of your sorrow will end. So you just see this image of Yahweh being the sun rising, and then that image 
spawns a whole new powerful image that if Yahweh is the source of light and life in the world, then it's going to be like there's no sun or moon. Who needs the sun or moon? Because Yahweh just radiates life and salvation to all of the, the new creation. Verse 21. Then all of your people will be what? Righteous. How are uh, all of your people made righteous? Here, it just assumes. Really how do all people? How do all your people become righteous? Through the through the death and resurrection of the servant on their behalf. They will possess the land forever. And the land is much like more than just a plot of land in Israel, Palestine. Like we're talking about the new creation here. They are the shoot that I have planted. So the the servants or the redeemed in the new creation, they're like a little plant, a new plant that's grown out. How many times have we come across this metaphor? God's people like a plant or a shoot. They are the work of my hands for the display of my splendor. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest, mighty nation. I am Yahweh. In its time, I will do it. I will do it swiftly. Um, thoughts or questions? Great. How are you guys doing? So, well, I, I think we've kind of done it. <laughs> I mean, I, if I was going to give you a good sampling of everything in the book, I think we kind of we kind of did it. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I, yeah, I just want to. How are you doing with Isaiah? Any other thoughts or questions about Isaiah specifically? Then it's only fitting we'll read from Revelation nine. Yeah, it's tricky. In the word mystery, one of it's the way that the word mystery in the Bible is different than the way we use mystery. So we think of mystery as in terms of, uh, you know, you can't understand it. In the Bible, mystery means something that was unclear but has now been revealed. And so when Paul says the mystery in Christ or something, he he means what was unclear but has been made clear now in the events surrounding Jesus and so on. So again, all of this is sitting here in the book of Isaiah long before Jesus ever came around. Um, and it was the unique piece, again, that the Messiah would die and be raised ahead of the whole rest of the new creation. That there would be a gap between. I mean, you even think about it in, in Isaiah 61. The announcement of salvation and judgment happen at the same time. And then what happens in the death and resurrection of Jesus is you find out that the good news ushers in a whole era of separation from the final judgment and final resurrection. And that's new. So I think essentially that's kind of what Paul's getting at here. That the Messiah, or that the servant would die for the sins of the people, that's not a new idea. But that uh, that he would die and be raised from the dead ahead of everyone else. And we have this window, this 
huge window of time where Israel is hardened and the Gentiles come in. Uh, Paul saw all of that as a, as a mystery that worked itself out in, in, in the gospel. Does that make any sense? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And even after that, he said he went to the deserts of Arabia for years um, to do who knows what. You know, I happen to think he probably just scratched his head and prayed a lot and read the Hebrew Bible all over again, you know, with a new set of eyes after the resurrection, um, putting all of this together. Mm hmm. Oh. Yep. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, actually, so that does kind of fit. He says, uh, so marriage between a man and woman, this is a great mystery. And by the way, I hope you understand everything that's happened between Christ and the church is actually, excuse me, everything that, every marriage that you've ever known is now revealed to be a picture of the Messiah and his people. Um, so I, I think it still fits the idea. Yeah. In other words, after the cross and the resurrection, Paul sees parables of the gospel everywhere. He even sees it in marriage between a man and a woman. He now rethinks in light of the gospel about Jesus. But I think it, I think it still works. Anybody else? I don't know. I think it still works. Yes, good. that's a good thing. Any, anything else? Has this been helpful? Okay, good, good. It's helpful for me. I've enjoyed teaching it. Uh, okay, let's uh, turn to the very end of your Bibles then. Uh, go to uh, Revelation chapter 19. Um, let's see. I'm kind of tired of reading all the time. Some of you want to read too? We'll make this a group reading experience. Um, so let's, uh, Mark, how about you start? And then I'll just kind of start going around. So Mark, would you read Revelation 19, uh, 1 through 3? So where where do you see Isaiah popping up here? Who's avenged here? The blood of the servants. Uh huh. So the idea that the servants are persecuted by the rejectors and the wicked. Here embodied by this figure of uh, Rome or Babylon. Um, and so the day of salvation comes and the servants are, are vindicated. The smoke going up forever and ever. One of these uh, uh, images from earlier, from like chapter one, about Sodom and Gomorrah. The great judgment God brings to be like. The judgment on Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, who wants to do verses four uh, through eight? 
Go for it. Landon. So we didn't actually, uh, no, we could have, but we didn't. So you can go do it again. In 60, chapter 62, Isaiah 62, the main image of the new Jerusalem is that of a bride. And the new creation, everything, is all about a wedding feast, where all this language comes from is Isaiah chapter 62. Um, and so look at verse 8. This is a good example. Sometimes John will do this in, in his vision. He talks about how the bride is wearing fine linen and so on, and then he inserts a little comment here, just in case you're wondering, what does the fine linen symbolize? Oh, the righteous act of the thing. And then we think, why don't you do that more often? <laughs> why don't you do that all the time? But no, he doesn't. He doesn't. Um, let's see, uh, verses verses 9 through 10. Anybody? Tabitha, you want to read last one? Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, So that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I don't see anything in Isaiah there. <laughs> That's okay, still a good time. You know the wedding supper, maybe. Uh, what about the ne- next passage here? This is uh, verses 11 through 16. Anybody? Go for it. So, uh, what, you can say this is not baby Jesus meek and mild, right? This is, this is uh, what Jesus said the day that was not, he did not come for this when he announced in Nazareth. He came for the time of good news, but he left out the day of judgment. This quotation from Isaiah uh, 61. Um, but uh, he will come, and he will, bring, he will bring the hammer for the horrible things uh, that we've done to this world and to each other. Notice one piece here. Look at verse 15. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. Does that ring a bell anywhere? Yeah, so this is one of the depictions of uh, 
Isaiah 11, um, but also one of the servant songs. Which, uh, mm-hmm. uh, he's made me like a sharp sword in his hand. So again, it's not, again, you can't think literalism here, like there's actually a sword coming out of his mouth. I don't even know what that would mean. What does it mean that out of his mouth is a sharp sword? Metaphor of his words, yeah. So he speaks words of justice that define between right and wrong. Bringing, he's bringing justice. The word of uh, oh, it's like a sword. Yeah, exactly right. Like a sword that pierces and so on. The word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we didn't read it, but the whole idea of the wine press of God's wrath that comes from Isaiah sixty-three. Um, let's go to chapter twenty-one. Let's do chapter twenty-one, uh, verses one through five. Anybody? I don't know, I'm just looking at you. All right, all right, go for it. Go for it, Brett. Yeah, it's a powerful imagery, huh? Uh, so we have this new creation, and bad news for surfers in the new creation, right? It's a bad joke, I'm sorry. So, uh, the sea, is, is this, what's the sea in the Old Testament? The, the, the waves of the sea. It's bad. <laughs> bad. The sea is always, and think about it, especially in the ancient world, before, like, you know, big... Princess cruise line ships, nothing. The sea is where exactly where you don't want to be, especially at night. And the sea is dangerous. It's dangerous. And in the imagination, especially of the ancient Near East and of Israelites, the sea became an image of everything that's unruly and unpredictable and dangerous in God's world. And so, in this, again, it's apocalyptic poetry here, one of the most dark, mysterious, dangerous things in God's world will be God. So, does that actually mean there won't be an, like, an ocean in the new creation? I, I think it's probably pressing imagery too far. So, it's theological imagery. Okay, so that's always one that I know has puzzled, used to puzzle me. Um, and then you do a study of the sea throughout the Bible, and it's always negative. So, the idea is everything negative will be removed. Isn't there a song to it? Oh, uh huh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember where that is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, true. On the island of Patmos. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It's yeah, a good point. So uh, we have the new creation. The wiping of tears from the eyes um, came from a couple places. In the, book, in the book of Isaiah. Um, 
Next section, verses 6 through 8. Anybody? <coughs> yeah, go for it, please. So, again, there's a number of things. Uh, I am the beginning and the end. We didn't read any of these passages, but that is a phrase that comes right out of the book of Isaiah. Um, because he's from the beginning to the end, his promises are reliable and true. That's a big theme in Isaiah, in the 40s of Isaiah. What about the people who are thirsty, come drink free water? Where did we come across this? We came across this today. Come for free water. Come on, anybody. Come, 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 come. So it's Isaiah 55. Come on, join the, join the feast. And then, you know, and we're like really happy. And then verse 8. It's that dark curtain reminding us that one of the, uh, as C.S. Lewis says, a hell is a monument to God's honoring of our choices and of our uh, choice to reject him and so on. And so you have this, this dark kind of tone in verse 8 that there will be those who want no part of what God is doing here. And they choose, they choose their place. Uh, one last uh, couple passages here. Um, chapter 21, verses Yeah, do you recognize some themes here that we've come across today? Yeah, the, all the light imagery. So, who needs the sun when you have the Creator God in your midst? That's the idea. And I love this image of God, the glory of God is the light of the city. But you also need a lamp, too, sometimes. And what's the lamp? <laughs> the lamb. So, again, the lamb is the lamp. It sounds funny in English. In Greek, the words don't rhyme or anything like that. But um, the, the image, do you see? This is a good example where the images are we're supposed to get the theological meaning out of the images. He's not actually trying to paint a visual picture. What does it mean that the lamb is a lamp? I suppose I could go find a lamb lamp at Ikea somewhere for Roman or whatever, and he might like that or whatever, but that's not the point here. The point is recalling the theological meaning of the images. That's what's trying to across here. Um, and then again, the picture of this, uh, this city, this New Jerusalem. And evil is so eradicated and dealt with and separated out that 
you don't even need the city gates to be closed anymore. So city gates are for protection, keeping things out. Uh, and so, well, just let them be open because there's no more threat anymore. Uh, there you go. Okay, last last section, chapter 22, um, verses one through five. And we'll draw this to a close. Anybody? Darren. Um, gosh, there's a number of things going on here. You have the light theme come up again. Except now you don't need a lamp, do you? Like, wait, I thought the lamb was the lamp. But now I don't need a lamp anymore. <laughs> okay, so this is a good example here. It's kind of like the ending of Isaiah, where you just have these images thrown at you. Take each one at a time, unpack it, but don't try and paint a mental visual picture in your head. That's not what you're supposed to do. <laughs> you're supposed to get the meaning of the images here. And so this is one of the most interesting ones here at the end, is, is this new creation, is it a garden or is it a city? So yes, yeah, it's both. It's both. And it's not like, oh, it's a little arboretum within the city or something. No, these are two, it's like a city. It's also like a garden. And uh, leaves of the tree for the heat, rivers going around, what are all these rivers in the garden, what are we thinking of here? I mean, he's not talking about Isaiah anymore. He's going back to the Garden of Eden, and the imagery of the Garden of Eden here. Um, so it's a garden, it's a city, it's full of light. Um, and there's the throne, verse 3, the throne of God and the Lamb, and who's there in the new creation with him? The servants. The servants are. Uh, and the point is that they reign forever and ever. So this is a good one. This is a good one. They will reign forever and ever. Um, where have I heard about this idea of a creation being handed over to someone as servants so that they will rule over it? So go to the first page of your... We're on the last page of the Bible. Well, they go to the first page of the Bible. This is the fitting, this is the fitting end here. First page of the Bible. Or at least Genesis chapter 1. Uh, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He blessed them. Uh, notice at the end it said there will be no more curse or there will be nothing cursed because that was never God's desire for us. We brought curses on ourselves but his desire is to bless. He blessed them, said to them, be fruitful, multiply in number, fill the earth and subdue it and do what? Rule, 
reign over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, living creature. So uh, the whole point of the story is that God dwells with his image-bearing creatures as they take charge and as they steward and manage God's creation. And uh, all, I mean, again, so what Revelation is doing is he's um, taking all this from Isaiah and, and Genesis and wrapping it in uh, to the story of the gospel and the story of, of Jesus. Um, so there you go. Good story, okay? Yeah, there you go. Um, so I hope, uh, you know, we've only been able to touch down. So I hope, you know, I've been able to help you kind of understand Isaiah. But even more so, I hope that you will be able to actually read it in a way that you can understand it <laughs> more in the future. Because we just touched down and really just touched the tip of the iceberg. And so I hope you're encouraged to go explore the spelunking uh, in the depths of Isaiah for years to come. Because it's just it's a wealth, a wealth and a real gift that God's given us in Isaiah. So, great. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Have a, have a good